0: LinkedIn is an organization with thousands of employees. An enterprise of that size starts to develop problems with data collaboration. Data collaboration is the process of sharing and analyzing data with multiple users, such as data scientists, business analysts, and engineers. How do data scientists know what questions to ask? How do business analysts know the right way to query a database? How does a data engineer even find where the right database is within the company's sprawling infrastructure? And how can these different users share information with each other so that redundant work is avoided? When Adam Weinstein was at LinkedIn, he saw these problems firsthand. The process of accessing and utilizing data felt slow and broken. Engineers would have to search through the company's wiki to find out how to leverage data. And the wiki was often out of date. For example, you might have to figure out a query, the semantics of a query, to access the right database piece, which somebody else in the company has already figured out. And that's redundant work. And when an engineer would leave the company, there was not this durable institutional memory of how that engineer worked with data. Adam used his experience at LinkedIn as inspiration for Cursor, which is a tool for data collaboration. Cursor allows different users in the data pipeline to share data sets, queries, access patterns, and comments about data within a company. Cursor is used by LinkedIn, Slack, Apple, and other companies. Adam is the CEO of Cursor, and he joins the show for an interview about the problems and opportunities of data collaboration. This is another show in a series of shows about the data systems problems within companies. We've kind of stumbled into doing a lot of shows about this, but if you're interested in this topic, we've done shows about Dremio, Outlier.ai, Uber. Uber's data platform solved some of these data problems at, at Uber. Not that they are solved completely. These are just perennial problems at companies in modern engineering. So it was interesting to hear Adam's side of it. Before we get started, I want to mention we are looking for sponsors for Q4. If you're interested in reaching the 50,000 engineers that listen to Software Engineering Daily, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. You can also check out our website. We've got a form for you can fill out the form and tell us what you're looking for, and we can get back to you about advertising opportunities. We're also hiring. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs if you are looking to be a writer or a podcaster with us, we've got some openings, and I'd love to hear from you. Adam Weinstein, you are the CEO at Cursor.com. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: I want to talk about what you're building at Cursor, but I'd like us to start with what you were doing at LinkedIn. So you were at LinkedIn for three years. You were working on business development and data products. You had some insights from that experience that led you to eventually working on Cursor. Describe what you were working on at LinkedIn.
1: Yeah, sure, no, great question. So my background is heavily in uh, leading data at early stage companies. I was jokingly acquired into LinkedIn. They bought a company called Bright, where I led data in 2014. And when I joined the analytics function there, the first thing I was actually assigned to do was to help build out an analytics team in China. So China was an interesting operation, or should I say investment for LinkedIn, in that it was built to be heavily autonomous. You know, we didn't necessarily believe that we knew all the answers, and we also, from a legal and security perspective, wanted things to be relatively isolated. And so in, in doing that, we basically attempted to replicate a lot of the things that we had at headquarters in Mountain View at the time. And so as the new guy, the, the irony was that I didn't have a lot of that understanding. And so I spent a fair amount of time going around the business. Jokingly said I had, you know, there were over two 200- hundred Coffee meetings just to try and meet folks that had understandings of various you know nooks and crannies of the business and particularly data around the business and in order to really document it and then ultimately fly across the world and, and then teach it to the newly hired team in Beijing. And so my role there at the time was was you know as a, a leader in that analytics function and, and particularly focused on, on building out the business in China, but grew over time into leading various aspects of data around the business. So when I was in BD, I led our, our developer platform because I became sort of familiar with the legal out ins and outs of, of data in our company. I ended up doing a lot of partnerships where where teams wanted to use LinkedIn data, profile data, you know, other data part of their product, but never really left the data realm entirely. Just you know, sort of worked on various sides of it.
0: So, as you were getting a survey of LinkedIn, basically from the top down, is is what it sounds like. Although you were able to drill into specific areas as it was necessary, you were seeing some of the data access issues within. A large organization like LinkedIn. And that's a large, cutting edge organization. There are much more severe data problems at companies that have a little bit more of a legacy infrastructure. Than a place like LinkedIn, what were the problems with data access that you saw at LinkedIn?
1: Yeah, no, great question. You're right. Like we had phenomenal engineering teams. A lot of things we'd be we had the luxury to be able to build that. You know, another organization that may not be a technology company might not have that that option. But the challenge really was was access and you know sprawl. So we had roughly 300 folks on on the core analytics team when I left. It's called business operations. Really was sort of the the more uh, commonly used title. But there were roughly a thousand people a day. That that would write a SQL query inside the company. So, you know, if you think about know, technical ability of a data user, right? On one end of the spectrum, you've got someone that can pull up a Salesforce report. On the other end, you've probably got a data scientist that can go write, you know, something that's machine learning-esque. In between, you've probably got a lot of people that are Excel and SQL savvy. Well, we had a lot of that that in between. And so the challenge that we had, and we had, you know, we had data living in Salesforce as a good example. Maybe not so much today in a Microsoft world, but, you know, Salesforce CRM data. We had a large data warehouse or, or somebody even called it a Data Lake split between Hadoop and Teradata. And then we had a number of reports Reporting tools that we use around the organization. So everything from Tableau to things that we had built internally that would support our product and a number of things in between, right? There were financial reporting tools, there were HR reporting tools, all of which had some value depending on who you were as a user. And so the challenge became, you know, where do you find an answer to a given question if you don't know where to start? If you were a new hire, you were looking at something that was out of your core competency, you could go ask your friendly analyst and they may or may not know, but but there was no global repository that could that could capture all the sort of data work that was going on around the company. And so that was a challenge that, you know, yes, we felt, and, and it was difficult, mostly given the quantity of data that we had, but I think also the quality aspect became an issue as well, which is if something's called a sales report, which one's accurate out of the 900 you might see in Tableau or in Salesforce. So, so it was... I don't think our needs were as unique as as maybe we might have thought they were. They just might have been slightly different shaped.
0: Right. These data problems within enterprises, it's like every, every handoff from one person to another of a problem introduces a new set of problems. So for example, there's problems at the bottom of the stack where a data engineer needs to have access to a certain kind of data or they need to speed up a query of a certain kind of data. And then there's problems at the top of the stack where the VP of marketing just wants to know how a certain advertising campaign did. And that's going to involve this chain of a data analyst talking to a data scientist and a business analyst. And they're all talking to the data engineer and maybe there's data quality people in between. So there's all these different communication points from the top down question the vp of marketing saying i need to know how my advertising campaign did because that's going to control the next 5 million dollars of budgeting for marketing because i need to know which which marketing verticals did well should i should i invest more in billboards or more in targeted ads or you know direct mail without data i have no idea how to make decisions and so these problems that manifest in between these different layers of the stack, which of these problems do you see as most acute?
1: Yeah, so it's it's funny, you described it very well. Most acute is the, at least for, for from my personal experience, right, is the the actual sort of data work that's getting done. So whether it's code that's getting written, or it's the, the, the translation from the question to the data answer. And I think that's where a lot of pain gets felt. That's not to say that the actual communication aspect or the telephone game you described isn't also... As painful for the business user that's on the receiving end of that, and actually, I think as a product, we ultimately intend to address both because it's, it's just as valuable to see, okay, here's the code that was you know written to answer a particular question, as much as it is the conversation that preceded that actual code. Because ultimately, if you're, if you're thinking about you know businesses and you know particularly processes or functions like that scenario you described around you know optimizing a marketing campaign that gets replayed over and over and over again, and even though it may happen once and then you know go away for six or nine months. It's going to happen again, even if it's just a subset of the original question. So there's, there's no area that doesn't have pain associated with it as a you know, data geek, I guess you could say. You know, the pain I've experienced most has to deal with how do you deal with the handoff from the business user to the actual code and then back. As opposed to the conversation up front, but to the business and to like creating a you know institutional knowledge base, there's there's value in both.
0: And then every eighteen months per department or per layer of the stack, a new employee is rotating out or rotating in, so you're losing institutional knowledge and this is actually something that your product helps with which we can get to eventually but staying on this on this high level topic of the org structure and the just the the workflow patterns that exist in these different enterprises including companies like LinkedIn we've seen the workflows change somewhat so for example we have seen the rise of the data engineer. We've seen newer querying tools like Looker and Periscope Data. How have you seen companies change as a result of the increasing volumes of data, you know, data engineers? I guess there's all, you know, on the plus side, there's more knowledge of data. There's a wider spread of knowledge in terms of people who can actually work with things like HDFS and all the layers on top of that, uh, but how have the the volumes of data and the newer tools, how has it changed the org structure and the decision-making within these companies?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a couple ways to look at it, right? If you go back, you know, 10 years, so first company I sort of jumped to the data with was a company called ExactTarget, which is now Salesforce Marketing Cloud. Actually, one of the co-founders at Cursor and I were both there together uh, he was my engineering counterpart. But the tools that we used then, so it was business objects, we looked at MicroStrategy, the time to insight, as we used to call it. So from the time a request got made to the time the actual answer or the report or dashboard was delivered, it was in the order of weeks, right? I mean, we tried to keep it down to four weeks. Sometimes it was longer, sometimes it was shorter. But it was never, hey, I want to go connect to data source, write a query, create a dashboard in a couple of hours and be done. And that was very common back in, you know, 2000s early. Then comes along Tableau and more recently Power BI, and and we'll get to look at here in a second. And that made it the exact opposite, right? Anybody with enough SQL knowledge or ability to drag and drop some some columns and apply some filters could go create a pretty visualization. The challenge with that came that, you know, the quality of it didn't necessarily match the ease of which you created it. So if you didn't have deep data understanding, if you weren't the data engineer, if you will, if you were just a business analyst or just someone that, you know, was just impatient, which is a good thing by the way, and we'll get to that here in a second, you may have missed a couple things along the way. So you might have created something that might not have ended up being exactly what you sought out to create. You forgot to exclude test users or didn't know how to filter test data or something like this. And and so you, you missed out on a little something. Now you've had a wave of tools. Looker is a good example of one of them where it's very balanced, right? There is some sort of approval or appliance to it if you will. I don't know if they want to want to call it that. But you know, there's some fact checking that's involved before the dashboard gets published to the world. And that's I think a, a healthy balance compared to maybe the the old of the weeks and the new of a couple of hours. It's you know somewhere in between. The way I see this going, I guess, is is that you'll have companies that will probably have a myriad of tools, right? Some that require extreme rigidity, so it's, you know, if you need to file something with the SEC, you probably need some compliance around it. On the other hand, other questions that might require just something that's directional in, in nature. And so, I think teams will have skill sets that match that. So, you'll have business analysts that or some I even call them like citizen data scientists that need to be more and more data fluent. They need to be they need to know SQL. You know, I think the death of which is probably greatly overstated, but they don't necessarily need to be full-fledged data engineers. On the other hand, you'll have folks that can help assist further down the line if you need to dive deeper into something that are you know, data scientists are are capable of going and diving into some Python or some Scala or some Spark or something like that. And so yeah, we've seen both and I don't think any of them are going away. I think the need to dive in the data is only growing. And that creates fragmentation in terms of the more people using it, the more content that gets created. The more content gets created, the harder to know what the truth harder to know what the truth is. And that's that's really just an evolution of creation of data. How much is getting created and demand for it.
0: So when you were at LinkedIn, you built an internal tool or an internal spreadsheet or something that was widely used within the company. What was it that you built?
1: Oh yeah, so this is a good hack day story. So a few folks on the team, we had this once a month thing called an in day. They'd be focused on on various things. Sometimes it was getting out and cleaning up the community. Other times it was, you know, maybe you you get together as a group of folks and try and build something that might be valuable to the business. And after going through the process in China and flying back and forth, one of the guys I worked with, uh, Matt Rendley, he and I were like, okay, we've got all these queries. Like, they're sitting on our hard drive. How do we get this out to the world? So A, our inboxes stop going nuts. And B, you know, we do something valuable for the business. And so we built what was literally just a web form application. It had, you know, what is the title of the code? What is the code? You know, a little, I think it had maybe a thumbs up, thumbs down. Is this still valuable? And that was about it, right? It was not a query editor. It was not collaboration. It was not anything close to the source. It was literally just a, it could have been an Evernote for all it mattered, right? Of, of the content, but we just couldn't use Evernote because security purposes. And so that was it. But we ended up seeing that, you know, hundreds of users around the business started started consuming from it. It got shared, right? And that was, that was the point. And then, you know, folks also started contributing to it, which was nice. Uh, it, it was not fully featured, right? We weren't engineers. Hackers might even be the best way to describe it, but it ran on my desktop and, you know, people could use it. And uh, I don't believe it's still running anymore, but I, I do know it existed after I left. But I think they've, I think they've since, it's gotten stale enough and and the contribution count went down because enough folks that were there, like you said, every 18 months have rotated or, or moved on that it probably wasn't as valuable as it used to be. But that was sort of the light bulb in my head that said, Hey, there's, there's a need here.
0: So to be clear, the light bulb was that if I'm somewhere in LinkedIn and I issue a query to a database somewhere, it is useful to LinkedIn as a whole if other people within the company are aware of that query and can potentially reuse my query.
1: Yeah, exactly. So specifically to the question you asked, it was like, okay, we built this little database of queries and hundreds of people around the business were accessing it, not even knowing who we were, right? That was... That was part A of the light bulb, but you're right. Part B is that like, if you're taking time to write any amount of code, if you're an engineer, that code goes into a place that the business can search it you know, and discover it. If you're an analyst, that code wasn't going anywhere. And so, yeah, you hit the nail on the head that if I'm taking the time to do work in search of an answer to a question, you know, 98% of that is a value to the business. There are certainly times where it may not be. It's like, hey, I just want to give me 10 rows from this table because I forget what the column names are or something like that those queries aren't as valuable, but that still is probably part of a larger answer where you're trying to assemble a query to a bigger business question. So most code is something that should be captured by the business and that should be, you know, searchable for the next guy, like you just said.
0: Yeah, I feel like I've worked at places where in my first week of working there, somebody shares the wiki page or the Word document that has the list of queries and how to get the database, like how to get access to the database, how to like access the, ta- the, the database in the right way to get the answer to you know, this query is just like there's like a spreadsheet or, or, or a Word document or some other non-tool, unformed block of text that tells you how to interface with the database and retains the institutional knowledge of the data analysts that have rotated in and out of the company.
1: That is sad, but true. Yeah, when, it, when I got to LinkedIn... We ran like a, you know, the open source version of, you know, I think it was Wikimedia is what they call it internally as a wiki or or knowledge base and had everything from, you know, vacation policies to exactly what you just described. And there was a page with probably a thousand queries on it, 980 of which were so out of date, you couldn't even use them. Like, I think it was written in 2008 or 2009. It was 2014, 15, right? We were looking at it had never been updated. It had some, you know, table names and things like that you might make use out of. But yeah, the the challenge is it's, you know, to take time out of your day when almost every employee at every organization these days is working to 100% capacity, right? There's not like there's slack time to go sit and think, okay, how can I go help the company, even though that would probably be a good thing. So to have something separate like that, it was benevolent of one person to do it at one point, but it rarely gets revisited with any sort of frequency. So if you can have it built into your workflow that, you know, hey, you're writing code, it's automatically getting captured, being made searchable, you know, you're doing yourself a favor by helping uh, yourself to find it down the road, but you're also helping your teammates and, and, and the business as a whole.
0: Is it this a problem that people have seen before and tried to address the problem of, okay, I'm writing a query for a database, it would be useful if that query was saved somewhere, and if somebody else could use it, this must be a problem that other people have tried to address.
1: Yeah, I think there's, there've been a couple attempts to do things that say involve just storing code. I can go back to like a company like Mode Analytics, which is a great product. And, you know, they ended up building out more of a fully functional BI platform. So it's not just code anymore. It's very heavily focused on visualization and reporting. And there are other, other tools out there that, you know, allow you just to sort of save snippets of code. I think where we see ourselves going with it is, is more focused on search and for an analyst search, may be focused on finding code that answers data questions but for a business user, search is really here's the question I have: Where does that answer live? Or if it's not with within a system that I can just click on and get access to, you know, who is the analyst that wrote the code and how do I connect with them? And that is a little bit more powerful, I think, or a lot more powerful, in that no matter where I live in the business, everybody has data questions of some sort, right? If I'm a sales leader, I need to know stuff about my pipeline or my quota or you know my territory or, or you know where I'm at relative to my peers. If I'm in customer support, you know, same, some more, some more types of questions, but in finance, I've got data questions. So how do you capture the conversation and questions that are going on around the business? And for that matter, the answers that go with them with, you know, on the other end of that problem, you know, an increasing number of places where answers may live. So if you look at what SAS tooling has done is you've got great tools that solve even, you know, incrementally smaller problems. Like if you think about the number of tools a designer uses today or a, data analyst or a, you know, finance professional, they've got a tool for sort of every little piece of the job. But what that generates is then, you know, solutions or answers or reports that live within each one of those little tools. So if we can get visibility into each one of them, and most of them have APIs that we can do so with, we can provide, you know, a search layer that no one else has, I think, ever tried to build across all of that.
0: But the other element of, the timing of of your business relative to, I don't know, the other companies that have tried to build some repository of queries that people throughout the the organization have been asking. Because it's kind of, that's one element. I think that's an important element of Cursor. And we can talk about it in more detail. But just in terms of the context, enterprises are realizing the the value of the social component. I think Slack was a real pivotal change for people in this because you think about what is kind of generation one of social like the social company it's like maybe internal im or or like yammer or something like that or it's it's wikiing or it's jira ticketing and that's kind of social but it's not really leveraging crowdsourcing it's not leveraging social to the same extent that slack does it slack kind of has a feeling of gamification you feel a little bit rewarded for working within slack whereas you know yammer i I don't know if that was the case but instant messaging i certainly don't feel you know rewarded sending somebody an internal message instant messenger but slack feels a little bit different you know, maybe Asana feels a little bit different. And with cursor, you've got you've also got this social, this crowdsourcing feeling, uh, or this this con- contributor feeling. So I think the social component adds something to it. And I guess we could just get into into talking about cursor. So when did you start building cursor? And what problem does it attempt to solve?
1: Yeah, no, great question. And agree on the social piece, right? It's it's a uh, Slack, wasn't the first to do what they've done, but they did it in a way that got them over the hump, right? Compared to others, whether it was the IT hump or the security hump or and the, the colors, usage adoption hump,
0: the animation.
1: Yep, yep, it's, emojis. It's, it's, it's everything. Yep, you got it. I mean, custom emojis, right? I mean, there's there's there was just enough viral there that it got through and and was very sticky. But no, so we started Cursor officially last August, day of the eclipse, actually, I think it was August 21st. You know, the three of us started on, on, on that day. So Jason, Pat, and I, the, the problem we attempt to solve is, is I think we've, we've discussed a little bit, but, you know, it's twofold, right? At the beginning, you know, we focused more on the analyst experience and how do you help analysts or folks that work with data across a business, whether their title is analyst or it's data scientist or it's, you know, even data engineers in some cases, right? How do we help them be more productive by, you know, not repeating what's already been done before. And for that matter, uh, making certain that from a precision standpoint, they're using, you know, code that's been blessed or that they know to be accurate. So this motion of like, you know, a data dictionary and something that like, hey, you've got a definition for a given business term, it's churn or sales or revenue or a booking or a new business versus a renewal business how does that actually translate into code and how can you reuse these as building blocks across your sort of data universe so that's for an analyst or for a data user you know our goal is to build a data catalog of that code but also provide a development environment that they can use that like you said it's is very social is very friendly it's approachable whether you're a sql expert or you're new to sql and they can be you know That can grow with the business, right? Whether it starts on one team and grows from there or IT says, hey, this is your new tool and everybody's got to use it because we want to build this institutional knowledge base. It's flexible in that deployment model. So that's the goal from an analyst perspective. To a business user and, and sort of where we see the business going is, I think I mentioned earlier, it's like, how can you be search for all things data. We don't necessarily think we'll get all the answers and we don't want to go there just yet. I think that, you know, AI machine learning is not to a place where you can, even if you had full visibility to the data, you could actually predict the answer. But if we can say, you know, just like a Google search result would, here are 10 places where we think the answer might be ordered it by relevance. You know, we think we stand a much better chance of, of getting that right. And so to the extent that we have integrations or can connect to any place where answers may live, whether that's a... BI platform like a tableau or a Power BI or a Looker or a whatever maybe MicroStrategy, et cetera. Or it's you know, a Salesforce report, or it's just an ad hoc query that an analyst wrote six months ago. How do we identify and connect, you know, someone asking a question with with that answer or with, with that source? That's where we see the business really going. And so today we we launched the first version of the product in May. You know, as, as a free product to the world. It was Designed really just to you know get people's feet wet with this notion of collaboration around queries, and we've continued to add quite a bit of enterprise functionality around that over the last you know few months, and we'll be having a what I would call sort of an enterprise version here available to the world very very soon.
0: Okay, the three word pitch that I heard you say there, collaboration for queries. To my mind, that seems like the best way of explaining it today.
1: Agree. T- to today, the product as it exists, I-, I would you hit the nail on the head. I think down the road, there's probably search is is a part of that three or four word phrase. But today, I'd agree that's that's where we are.
0: What would I be searching for?
1: So anything that would be relevant to that code. So we do a bunch behind the scenes to sort of abstract away, you know, just the terms of a SQL query. So if your SQL query is, you know, you've got table names, you've got field names, you've got, you know, maybe a where clause in there. We also, as part of the product, you know, ask you to give a, a plain text description of what it is that you're doing, and so and a lot of that goes back to how do we begin to build a, a corpus of data and attach that to tables and columns, etc., around your business, uh, and so that that's part of the cataloging process, if if you, you want to call it that, is to to be able to understand that. So we, if you're looking for, you know, as an example, say a, a churn report in sales, we will behind the scenes go look at if you search for churn report. We will look at any anything that mentions any term related to that and identify what we think is, you know, the highest score, if you will, for query that you type. So if it's a snippet of code that's been written and maybe churns in the SQL, we'll find that. If it's someone gave a plaintext description that called something churn and, and we verify that by looking at the code and that you know other folks have used that same terminology with that same table or, or same set of tables. We'll prioritize that, but it's whatever you would use in a you know any sort of query, right? So whether it's a Google query or or just a, a search in, in a Google Drive, right? Like you, you would be able to use the same thing in a Cursor to try and find something.
0: It's just really useful. And the analogy that I sometimes think about with with this, or where I was thinking about when I was preparing for the show, is how websites tailor their website layout to be indexed more easily by Google so you have website like a recipe website that will you know make their internal website index schema in a way that is amenable to Google's crawler so that when Google indexes it and Google looks through it and builds their their search rankings they can do it you know more effectively or at least more effectively according to Google and this seems like a kind of tool where you would get people doing the same thing because I want my queries to be accessible to other people in the organization. If I'm running an organization, I want people to be able to share queries with one another. So if I could issue a SQL query on the command line, or I could go into Cursor and Cursor can issue the query for me, and I'm just typing the same SQL code, if it makes no difference to me, whether I'm in, you know, a a dumb database access tool, like a command line or a you know, some free off-the-shelf tool for processing SQL queries... Or if I'm in cursor and it's it's like I'm entering Google searches and the search engine is getting smarter or the, you know, the database lookup system is getting smarter over time, of course I'm going to use the one that is going to get smarter over time.
1: No, I guess you could say what we're banking on, right? It's nobody wants to go figure out something from scratch that's already been done before and only to realize that at the end or, you know, for that matter, never realize it, right? There's not a high switching cost there, right? Which which could be a risk to us as well. But it, it is something that there's not great solutions for, especially, multi, you know, that are mac and pc supported that you know have a, have a web feel to it right we're built in electron just like slack is so it's, it's got a, a web looking feel to it and, and you're right like part of the sort of seo optimization that you described on the recipe site involves sort of the process of of how you build it right so today when you go write a query you literally are opening an editor you're creating a new tab. You're just typing some code. Maybe if you're diligent about it, you might put a comment above that. So if you happen to come back to it yourself someday, you can at least know what you're doing. That's also something we build into the product, right? Which is when you go to do something, give us three words or something similar on what you're actually about to do. You know, yes, it takes another six seconds of time to, to do that. But the hope is that that six seconds, if you trade it in to the community of knowledge that you're able to access, should save you, you know, hundreds of times that. The next time you go write something and you don't actually have to do it, you can just find somebody else's, change a date range, and you're done. And so that the social aspect as well as the knowledge aspect, right, that's a lot of what we're banking on.
0: Just to make people understand or have another chance at understanding this, give a few examples of how people use Cursor. Or maybe you could give a day in the life of a data analyst or a data scientist with and without Cursor, or how it makes a difference.
1: Sure. Good question. So imagine you're an analyst attached to the marketing organization. This is real example, by the way, real, real customer. I just won't, we'll try and leave names out of it for security stuff, but no, you're an analyst in the marketing organization. Your job is you sit in business meetings for some percentage of the day, and then you, you tend to be back at your desk producing, you know, working on some sort of analysis. Maybe it came out of that meeting for the rest of the day. So you'll sit down to your desk, you'll open up a query editor, you'll go look at some data in the data warehouse or data lake, right? Maybe it's in Hadoop, maybe it's in Teradata, maybe it's in Microsoft SQL Server. And you'll start crunching raw data to try and get to the answer to a question. Maybe the answer, maybe the question was, like we talked about earlier, you know, a campaign optimization mix. So somewhat the company spent a bunch of money, some of it's online, some of it's offline, and they're trying to figure out what the ROI looked like. How do they identify what customers or revenue came in that was attached to that campaign? So you're joining spend data to revenue data. You're massaging it to make certain that, you know, people that might have been touched in multiple ways are accounted for folks that were existing customers that you know may have been touched again don't get credit to that because they were already customers before and then as you're working through this code, and you'll probably have you know several queries that you'll write throughout this process, you're ultimately thinking about what is the undeliverable I want to create, right? Is it just an Excel spreadsheet that I want to send off in an email? Is it a Tableau dashboard or, or some sort of BI product? Um, and then who is the audience that I'm trying to build that for? So that person, they'll, they'll finally get the data massaged to the right level, right? And they'll get sort of a result set that explains what the answer is, the question that they had. So they'll have you know input dollars, output, revenue, um, broken down by by source. And then, you know, depending on that output, they'll decide where does it go. Most often, believe it or not, it ends up in an exported Excel spreadsheet that gets attached to an email. Some small percentage, call it 20 or less, ends up in a BI platform. Tableau is higher, you know, if you're if you don't have access to a casual or, or lightweight BI tool like that, you're probably even lower than that. And at that point, you'll, you'll, you'll share that result. And that will be at the end of that analysis for that moment. And then what'll end up happening is ultimately someone will come back and say, Okay, can you break it down by a week now? Because we changed the, you know, spend thresholds throughout the time of the campaign. Or someone else will want to go revisit that, you know, several months later. And their their process will probably start at the beginning in a current world. But if you had something like Cursor, you'd be able to go say, Oh, hey, Johnny had already attempted this several months back. I could just reuse it. Maybe change the date range, change a couple parameters and not have to start this from scratch. So there's, you know, I think what the person's doing, you're opening a SQL editor, writing some code, writing some more code, exporting the output sharing it with some audience, that today is a heavily local process, right? The SQL editor lives in your local machine. The data lives centrally in a database, data warehouse, data lake. But the actual work that you do never leaves your computer until maybe it's in that Excel spreadsheet or uh, if you happen to share it somewhere publicly like a Tableau or, or Power BI or some BI platform I happen to be there. So yeah, that's the challenge there is all that work that's kept local never could be viewed by anybody else that might need it. You know, it's not in the Excel spreadsheet. We used to do that sometimes at LinkedIn. Some people were nice enough to have a code tab, and if you get shared a spreadsheet around, you'd include the code with it. But more often than not, that that work is lost, and if anybody wants to go revisit it, they have to they have to start from scratch.
0: When a company's onboarding with Cursor, do they need to have some concerted effort to get? cursor connected to all the different databases what is the onboarding process for an enterprise
1: yeah so today if you go and you can do this today actually you can go to cursor.com you can download the product it actually it's, it's free to use in, in the version that you see on the website the process is Download it, install it, hook it up to whatever database that you want, just like any other data query tool or SQL query tool. No special effort or you know server required. You know the collaboration layer or the search layer lives in the cloud. It's locked down to your company, and you can control how it's locked down. So if it's to be locked down to your team or to three users or however you want it, you can you can manage all that much like a Google Drive or Dropbox the effort to actually get content into the system. So we'll automatically build a data catalog of any database that you connect. So if you connect to a Microsoft SQL server, we will build a search layer of all the tables in that system. But if you want to start capturing code that's written, you you would have to either write it in the product, or we have an API that will allow you to import it. If you happen to have a Text file of 500 queries, you know, we can actually uh, import those through our API. We'll build a tool ultimately to do that for you. Um, The challenge is everyone stores their things in different formats, so we're trying to work through something that's a little flexible there. But yeah, I mean, the the onboarding is, is is very lightweight. It's meant to feel like onboarding any other sort of social product. Like if you go download Slack today, you install it. You're the first user. You're the admin. You can control, you know, how people get invited and how many channels there are and how they're, you know, who has access to what. But, you know, it can start with one. Cursor is very similar. So one user can start using it. And then the next time somebody on the team has a question, say, okay, go download the tool, search it, all my stuff's in there. That's mostly how we've grown to date, which is just this organic process internally within companies we tend to plant the seed we'll reach out to someone and say hey here's what we're doing love to have you come try the product etc etc but but typically the the value it's delivering is is enough to get people to come use it and and let the company grow from there
0: so the client the cursor client the cursor desktop client it's an electron app it's a desktop app and in practice is it similar to like a just a client-side sql client or a client-side mongo explorer What is it doing to be able to query databases? Are there open source pieces of software you can use to just have this flexible query interface?
1: Yeah, so I think it it certainly has some of the uh, bells and whistles you would expect with a query editor. Searching for tables, you know, having a full-fledged editor with type ahead and, you know, syntax highlighting and all that kind of stuff. But where it's different and, and... sort of architecturally from an engineering standpoint, I think this is kind of the exciting part. We're an Electron client, but behind that actually sits a Java daemon because you know web code can't really talk directly to a database, right? So you need some back backend language there. That Java daemon is, is basically a broker between any query that's being executed against the data source. And the reason we have a client is because most data sources still tend to live behind a company's firewall. So there has to be something local to be able to access that. We can't do it directly from our cloud. Because we're not going to get a firewall exception, right? firewall exception, right? That's that's not likely as a <laughs> as a startup. So that Java daemon, it executes the query against the database. But then, anytime you're actually searching, so say you want to go see if a query has been written before, and you, and you pull up cursor and you go to the top of the search bar and you type, hey, you know, I want to look for this report or this this code. That's actually querying our cloud and any code that's been been published there. So we never see data itself. Data remains behind the company's firewall and, and either between the client and, and the database. But but the actual metadata from that, so the column names, the table names, the actual code itself, that does get shared, you know, securely within your organization as you as you define. And that's what, you know, is being sort of handled by that that Java demon that's behind that electron client. So we don't know many folks that are doing that that actually have a back-end app effectively behind Electron. We think it, it's a pretty powerful paradigm because you can do a lot of things behind the scenes there, from crunching to you know caching to even even you know dealing with encryption and stuff like that. So we see a lot of opportunity in that in that architecture. And actually, if you take it a step further, you know there, there are going to be instances where we're going to need to deploy Cursor on premise. Just regulated companies that can't use cloud services. Period. Uh, actually, LinkedIn was one of those. And in, in those scenarios, that Java daemon can actually be deployed centrally within the business. So you still, you actually could use Cursor within a browser, and that Java daemon just lives in one server in a company. Uh, and it, it sort of brokers all, all traffic internally between databases and, and, you know, the actual search layer of the product. Does that make sense?
0: It does, yeah. Can you talk more about your infrastructure and the process of building Cursor?
1: Yeah, sure. Caveat with I'm the only non-engineer on the team, but I'm an infrastructure nerd, so hopefully that helps a little bit. So yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the process was, was rather interesting, right? I think first the debate was what language do we actually use as a backend language, both from a... You know what's exciting and growing, and has the right community around it. To we're working with data, and, and what uh, restrictions does that impose on us? And so we ended up with Kotlin as a as a backend language. A because you know compiles the Java bytecode, um, you know interoperable with with most things Java. And unfortunately, the fact that most databases talk Java or JDBC, um, we were a little reluctant to go with anything else, just because if the OEM is only going to support their you know, Java derived driver, you know, going with a community driver in any other language, Go was certainly one that was high on their mind, may have put us in some sticky places as we got further down the line with enterprises that had, uh, you know, some really unique needs that maybe only the Java driver satisfied. So Kotlin lives, you know, in cloud layer, but then that Java demon I talked about behind the electron op is actually Kotlin, at least in code. And then, you know, architecturally, how we design the app to deal with a lot of security concerns, right, that you know, effectively that Java daemon has to be open only to our app, right? And how do we make certain that there's no man in the middle risk or, or things, you know, that could go between any traffic that we might be generating, right? Either to our cloud or to our client, such that, you know, this is some really sensitive information, right? Query results that might have a uh, you know, private company data. So there's a lot there from an encryption, you know, security standpoint that we maybe even overthought, uh, just given all of our backgrounds. I me mean, at LinkedIn, uh, Pat at you know Salesforce Exact Target with me, and then uh, Jason at Pandora at the beginning, and and now as the team's grown, we we all tend to be pretty security minded. But yeah, I don't, I don't know if that, that helps at all. I mean, Electron seemed like the natural fit as a as a client. It allows us to build the code once and deploy it across platforms. Um, so today it's just Mac and PC. Easily could add Linux to the mix, and 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 certainly will, and you know potentially as we think down the road. To I don't think we'll ever be writing SQL queries on mobile devices. That may be a bit extreme. I have seen people use like command lines on their cell phone. And it looks painful, but um, I do think there are pieces of content within Cursor that might be valuable to be searched from your mobile device down the road. So if you're looking for an answer to a question, you know that search experience. There's no reason why that couldn't live on your mobile device. And so there's there's opportunities there that I think we'll we'll be able to benefit from by using Electron in, in that regard answer sort of where you're going.
0: Definitely. What have been the biggest engineering challenges from all from those different domains that you just explained?
1: Yeah, so I think the the one I described earlier around getting an Electron app that has a Java daemon behind it, and all the sort of nuances that come with Java as a whole, right? Does someone have the JRE installed? Do they have the version of the JRE that you, you know, you built the product with? Electron has this ability to actually basically pre fire a service as it starts. It's documented, but not well used. So I think we think we're pretty unique or there's lot not, not enough or not a lot of folks that deal with that. And so that that was certainly one challenge, right? how we how we bundle that Java app with the electron you know client. and then thinking things through that you know go along with that in t- typical enterprise software like software updates. How do users or how does the product behave when a user may be disconnected? You know, what can they see? What can they not see? What can they do? What can they not do? Or for that matter, maybe they're behind the firewall, but they don't have internet access. It's not uncommon to have, you know, companies that have a production data environment where they can VPN in, but that VPN connection consciously blocks off internet access. And so there's there's a lot of networking nuances that we've we've had to deal with some of which we've already dealt with some of which we have yet to deal with but there are things that we've we've needed to build in and then the whole transport layer I think that I talked about around how what we send back to the cloud and how we do that in such a way that you know it's only visible to the organization at most but then it can be locked down you know by team by user however it may be in, in a flexible way that may or may not be known up front so you may run a query today and tomorrow you may change the visibility of that so how do you how do you build a product that can that can support that, you know, very similar to a Google Drive or Dropbox, right, that, that they, they can do the same thing. You can create a Google Doc and then share it with the world and then turn that off the next minute. Right. But thinking about that in terms of search and, and you know, how do you build a model around relevance that may change dynamically? It got a little bit more hairy. So that's a lot of where we've invested if that if that helps.
0: Yeah, let's talk about the business perspective and the challenges there. So, the, the space of data tools is very crowded, but on the bright side, the enterprises are typically willing to buy multiple tools, oftentimes with overlapping uh, concerns, as long as there's somebody in the organization that wants it. And they say, hey, this is a hundred bucks, or this is a thousand bucks, or this is fifty bucks a month. And generally, it just gets approved easily because any improvement to the productivity of an engineer, or a data scientist, or a data analyst is, is, is fair game. So there's benefits and disadvantages to playing in the kind of data tools space. How do you look at the market and what are the go-to-market challenges and opportunities that you're seeing?
1: No, it's it's a great question. Part of the time that I spent between LinkedIn and, and starting Cursor was actually addressing this very question, right? Because it's it's a crowded market. You know, differentiating yourself is probably harder than actually building a you know valuable product in some ways. You know, what are you doing that's unique that that everybody else isn't doing? Some part of right, and so so our model has actually been very bottoms up. So I think you look at other companies out there that have taken the same approach. Uh, Tableau and probably Alterix come to mind as as folks that have been really well with this, which is. You know, if you can get an analyst a tool that they can use on their own, that will make them more productive, that will make their team more productive, that will maybe even highlight their value to their to their organization, you've got it in, right? You've you've got a start of a of a sales process, and so that's the way we've approached this, right? So we we've gone out and looked at anyone that we think deals with data, right? If you've got SQL on a profile somewhere on the web, or you, you somewhere say that you've got a certification in you know Microsoft SQL Server or something that might be data related, right? You use Tableau, you've attended the conference, you give it a speech. We crawled kind of high and wide, um, trying to find anybody that might, might uh, fit that profile, and then we've effectively invited them to try the product. And to date, that's that's been very successful. So we've had you know roughly 500 companies or users from 500 companies you know, start to use the product, and you know that's growing. We a lot of that is on us now to get the product you know evangelized internally and help that user you know spread the spread the wealth if you will but the the goal has really been just let let the person that's driving the most value as you described earlier like the uh the analyst sharing code let them be the one that tries it first and then go from there so as opposed to being top down and having an army of sales folks call in and say to a you know vp or cio hey this is a product you need you know make the user look like a hero and then and then go from there and that's 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 been knock on wood successful to date.
0: Uh, how do you expect this space to change in the next five years
1: yeah no it's, it's a good question the thing that's that's interesting and I, i'm keeping a close eye on is is a lot of the regulatory environment so i think you know you've had companies that historically have been very slow to make data available to employees right like i think it's out of a security need right there's Huge concern or huge apprehension around opening things up internally in a business, even if it means increasing productivity. The risk that comes associated you know, comes along with that is is too great. So, keeping a close eye on on what you know a GDPR or you know, California's own equivalent of that that you know will go into effect here in a few years, what that will actually do to, to tooling inside organizations. But beyond that, if if you can assume that the tooling will will deal with what it needs to. I think what will happen is that there'll be more and more folks in a company that that need access to data and into raw data. The story I kind of tend to tell is that if you go back 20 years and you were graduating college, you know you used to list Microsoft Office and Excel on your resume as skills that you had. And especially if you were well-skilled or versed in one of those, it was, it was a valuable thing. If you look at the growth curve of, of, of SQL and, and knowledge of SQL, and this is actually something I did at LinkedIn, the number of people adding it to their profile, it's increasing at a super rapid rate. I think there's roughly 15 million people in the world that, that know SQL today. And if you see you know, industry surveys, that number is expected to grow somewhere between 40 and 60% over the course of the next seven years. And that's just because you know you can have as many reports and dashboarding tools as you want but a lot of questions still don't have a predefined answer. So you're going to have to dive into the weeds to get there. And so I think that tooling that can help encourage that and get people started and as you as they might say, like enable a casual or citizen data scientist to to, to go in and be effective, I think will, will be you know of, of great value. And that's certainly the space we hope to play in.
0: Okay. Well, Adam, this has been really great talking to you. I've really enjoyed learning about Cursor and your perspective on the Data landscape. No,
1: oh, hey, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Wow.